This is Wading Deep, a podcast that explores the connection between environmental justice and race. Racism pollutes our people and land. Resilience, our strength of spirit and hand. Resurrection, our healing, made whole we stand. I'm your host, the Reverend Jamon Taylor, rector at St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina, a congregation with a long history of challenging environmental racism. I am honored to welcome today's guest, Professor Kofi Boone, a fellow of the American Society of Landscape Architects, who is the Joseph D. Moore Distinguished Professor of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Planning at North Carolina State University. Welcome, Professor Boone. Thank you. Thank you. And it's good to see you, even though uh, we're not in the exact same place. It's good to speak with you today. It's great. I always appreciate you, Kofi. I, I met you years ago when I came to St. Ambrose almost 10 years ago, and we've uh, run in the same circle. So I appreciate your scholarship and your work. It makes the community a better place. I appreciate that. But, you know, likewise, uh, leadership in the community, we, we follow. So thank you for being a great leader. What is environmental racism in your own words? And that is a, a good, good question. I'll give you uh, how I learned it and then I can give you how I experienced it. Um, or maybe I'll do it in reverse. I'll talk about how I experienced it first. So I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, uh, on the east side of Detroit. And at a time when the city was in decline. And I remember uh, growing up, uh, uh, and everything around me was in various stages of, of repair. So, uh, you know, the streets, uh, we didn't have any parks or vacant lots all over the place where I lived on the east side was close to, uh, where there was a huge, uh, industrial sector that had closed down. And so, uh, even though it was closed, it was still there and still had toxic chemicals in the ground and had a lot of different things going on. So, you know, all of those things impact how we live. Um, our physical health, you know, so asthma rates were high in my community, uh, all kinds of uh, diseases that were uh, instigated by the built environment. Uh, safety was an issue uh, in my neighborhood where there was so much vacancy and so many other things happening that those became opportunities for people to get into other, other things other than legal activities. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe more importantly, uh, the perception of the community as a whole uh, was weakened because people didn't feel like, you know, it was going to change. So my lived experience with environmental racism, once I became older and realized things like demographics and data and mapping and things of that nature, was, you know, Detroit uh, at that time, a 70 to 80 percent uh, black city. The neighborhood I grew up in was closer to 90 uh, that that was occurring in my community, but there were other communities, uh, white communities and other communities that weren't experiencing any of that. And the idea that growing up, we thought it was like individual choices, you know, personal behaviors, but somehow we were acting in a way that meant that we quote unquote deserve to be the dumping ground for the whole region. But it turns out it came from policy decisions. It came from uh, who got elected uh, in office and what their values were. It, it was a result of the level of, of civic activism and, and the community resistance movements that in fact 
these communities that didn't have all of these negative consequences and lack of access to environmental benefits, they were organized. They were politically organized, economically organized. They're very proactive about who they pushed uh, for elections to, to meet their interests. They were very uh, protective, you know, and saw threats coming along the way and basically drew the line. So uh, that was my lived experience with it. But academically, I went to Michigan. And I was at Michigan when a number of scholars who were really central to the environmental justice movement really got going. People like Bunyan Bryant and Dorsita Taylor and a number of others. And environmental racism is that disproportionate impact on Black and communities of color, uh, exposure to toxics, exposure to environmental hazards, but also a lack of access to environmental benefits, healthy access to food, safe communities, uh, access to open spaces, you know, that litany of things. So I have the lived experience, but the academic one is that. And in fact, environmental racism was the first term uh, coined for this phenomenon that became environmental justice. Its original title was environmental racism. I appreciate that, Kofi. You actually educated me. I didn't realize that uh, the term environmental racism preceded environmental justice. And you spoke about a, a number of, of great things, your lived experience um, really impacted or really helped form the trajectory of, of where you are now. And you spoke a little bit about the resistance movement and being organized. St. Ambrose in its history has helped birth two community organizations. Um, the first was Partners for Environmental Justice, which Father Calloway in, in the 1990s, uh, along with Dr. Norman Camp, right. helped form, and that still exists today. Uh, the other is, is a newer uh, movement called One Wake uh, Community Organizing Effort that was launched in, in 2020. Um, nice. One of the first things we took on was the Kane development, the 150-acre development only a half mile upstream from St. Ambrose. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your observation, you know, as a child in Detroit of um, being organized, of community organizing, and then maybe now that you're an academic, uh, coming up from that lens as well. Yeah, I mean, organization and mobilization. I have a good friend uh, who reminds me that those two words mean two different things. So uh, mobilization, which is, you know, raise the flag, something's coming, you attract a bunch of people, but that's like a real critical moment where it flips into organization. Like how do you leverage, you know, that collective power? And that's really integral uh, to the environmental justice, environmental racism, anti-racism movements, which is to say uh, often people aren't aware that there are threats or benefits they don't have access to. Once they become aware, how do they get activated, plugged into process of change? And, and you know, your, your church and your leadership is one of the shining examples of how that could happen. Uh, you know, in my personal experience, you know, coming from Detroit, you know, that is also an industrial city. So there was a great history of labor organizing that then connected to, you know, all these subsequent movements. And uh, when I was younger, uh, uh, Grace Lee Boggs uh, was uh, just an exemplar, you know, who started the Detroit summer movement uh, to really infuse the next generation with you know, in our, our own backyard now in North Carolina, the legacy of SNCC and Ella Baker, the same sorts of principles apply to the whole community, which is to say that we invest in people, you know, with information and with agency and, and build, you know, collectively uh, building everybody's infrastructure. And it turns out that's perfectly aligned with the idea of environmental justice and environmental racism, which is to say, uh, even though a lot of this is policy and large decision making, the way that you shift it, change it, is learning how to apply pressure 
collectively in the right spots, being present in the rooms when decisions are being made, influencing those decisions. And historically, black and brown people has been a collective and community effort. So with regards to in the academic space, uh, often that's been providing technical assistance and support. Uh, so uh, as a landscape architect and someone who's professionally trained to deal with the built environment, you know, we speak a certain kind of language, we use a certain kind of tools that are, can be somewhat exclusive, but uh, we try to make those as uh, open, uh, as uh, accessible, uh, and in the hands of the people that need to make those decisions. So the idea that with technical support, you know, knowing what planning means, what different types of infrastructure means, knowing how to read certain documents, uh, where certain examples of change have occurred in other places, those are our gaps that we try to fill in the academic space to support uh, community effort. I appreciate that. Um, the phrase that you use, environmental benefits, certainly caught my attention. Could you talk a little bit uh, more about that and how certain communities, certainly historically uh, black and brown communities, have not been able to live into these environmental benefits? Yeah, it's a major thing. I think you know the basis of environmental racism uh, leading to environmental justice was more or less an anti-toxics movement. It was saying that there was a correlation between black and brown communities and uh, exposure to uh, brown fields, to exhaust from freeways, like a lot of things we all agree are bad. But later on in the literature and in current now, also a lack of access to the things that are beneficial, particularly in the public realm, parks and open space, access to healthy food, safe streets, a lot of things that we know advantage and, and provide better life experiences for other people. And it's been looked at, you know, analytically. So one example is the Trust for Public Land. Uh, you can go to their website now. Uh, they have mapped and developed a tool called Park Score, where they will tell you, you know, what communities don't, don't have access to open space within 20 minute walk. Uh, there are, you know, uh, lack of tree canopy, which we take for granted, you know, in certain parts of where we are, but that ability to cast shade, to cool homes, to create comfort uh, for people who need to walk uh, and use other means of transportation or just have a beautiful view. Like all these things have mental and physical uh, impacts. Uh, a very short story uh, that, that is relevant is uh, in the early 20th century, there was an era called redlining uh, where communities were uh, uh, divided by the homeowners loan corporation for viability for reinvestment or uh, getting access to loans to purchase housing. And long story short, race was the biggest determinant of being in a red line. Anything in a red line was a hazardous investment and there was no uh, bank investment there. And in cities like Durham, which had red line, uh, you can map current tree canopy, like the beautiful oaks that are hundred years old in shade to that era because they were planted in the twenties and thirties, right? And so black and brown communities at that time had the least amount of tree canopy the least amount of access to open space. And, you know, you scratch your head and you say, well, why is that true? Well, that means generations ago, those investments weren't made. So it's a real thing that produces material uh, benefits to people who have access to them, material costs uh, to people who don't. In the shift from the phrase environmental racism to environmental justice, do you think something was lost? Um, I do a lot of work around the operation of white supremacy. Mm. And I'm just curious your thoughts of that change in nomenclature 
and in the hunt to be expansive as far as language, do you think something was lost? It's a really good question. So environmental racism gets coined in um, uh, the Toxic Waste and Race Report that came from United Church of Christ, which at that time was led, uh, that, that commission that commissioned the report, uh, was led by uh, uh, Dr. Benjamin Chavis. Uh, so really, you know, someone from the religious community and also from our backyard in North Carolina. Racism very strategically used, saying that this was the product of policies and larger movements, not the individual behaviors of the back individuals, but, but, but policies. Move to justice, uh, and uh, uh, Robert Bullard has written pretty extensively on this uh, part uh, in Texas, but uh, the idea that justice uh, indicating uh, that movement, right, that we're not just stopping at uh, at stopping racism, we are we are in a pursuit of justice, right? And that that goes from the individual to the group to the community. So that shift wasn't perceived as sort of a softening uh, of the term. However, um, uh, really current decisions that are happening right now at the federal level are calling that into question. Uh, one of the first things that President Biden did when he took office was issue an executive order uh, that's now known as Justice Forty, where he uh, issued a mandate for every federal agency to prepare a plan uh, to talk about how they would uh, help to uh, support 40% of renewable energy investments going to black and brown communities, the most affected by environmental justice issues. And so coming back out of that, all these federal agencies produced their responses in terms of how they would deal with that from agriculture to housing, urban development, transportation on down the line. However, uh, at the same time, they developed a new tool to evaluate where those funds would go. Uh, so uh, there's an online tool that talks about areas that are already pre-approved by the federal government to compete for some of this funding. And they took race out of that criteria for environmental justice. Uh, Why did they do that? That is the question. Uh, so in their research, they've tried to and this has been true from the beginning of the environmental justice movement is, is race uh, a, another term you use for income? Is it another term you use for other characteristics of populations? And is race too broad or general? Well, the people who started this were people of color, black people, brown people, indigenous people. The initial scholars, the same thing. So that, that focus on black communities, brown communities, indigenous communities, is endemic, right? It was saying that this disproportionate impact was the thing. Federal government perspective, and it's not uh, slam dunk. There are people who have disagreed and there are people critiquing it now, including uh, uh, Dr. Bullard, uh, saying you know, that by removing race as a criteria, some people think it's political expediency, right? So to be able to work and operate in communities where race is still a contentious topic and to kind of make it more pragmatic for people to accept these investments. Other people are really pushing that idea that maybe race is one factor, not the main factor. So it's not decided yet, but we know that politically, uh, it gives more cover uh, for uh, these decisions that are to come in terms of these investments. So it's a real issue uh, in terms of how central race is and should be moving forward. Uh, just to put my personal attitude on the table, I think race is a huge factor. Um, uh, and as it connects to culture and how people are connected to place. Uh, you almost can't talk about the history of our country 
or any community without talking directly about the legacy of race. I agree with you. And the fact that they removed race is concerning. I think people get confused with correlation and causation. Um, Race and the economy or money do tend to correlate or socioeconomic status, um, but they are not replaceable. And one of the statistics that continue to floor me uh, around medicine is that a white woman without a high school diploma fares better in maternity, uh, child care, delivery, prenatal care than a black woman with an advanced degree. Mm. Um, both Beyonce and Serena Williams uh, experienced that tragedy uh, Two of the 100%. world's great greatest athletes. So in that case, you have a socioeconomic status, you have education, um, but race cuts through through all of those. So certainly race needs to be included. Um, you know, you spoke about, you know, Ben Chavis Muhammad and, and United Church of Christ. Ben Chavis also has an Episcopal Church connection. He and his family grew up at St. Cyprian's Episcopal Church in Oxford. Um, mm. And his sister, um, Dr. Chavis, just died not too long ago. So they are still uh, important families at the, Episcopal, the historically Black Episcopal Church in Oxford. And then you spoke about redlining. And certainly Raleigh also was a, was a redlined city. And Dr. Earl Imes and his research with North Carolina mm-hmm. History Museum has done a lot of work about Raleigh being unique in that we had two color lines, um, a north-south and an east-west color line, mm-hmm. um, Wilmington Street and Morgan Street. And St. Ambrose, uh, uh, by virtue of our history, was impacted by both color lines because uh, when the neighborhoods changed in 1900, we found ourselves on the wrong side of two color lines. And we Mm. uh, picked up our church, put it on logs and rolled it a mile south Mm. um, across um, Morgan Street and then across Wilmington Street to Shaw uh, Mm. across two two color lines. So Mm. uh, Mm. certainly race is an extremely important factor and does not always correlate to socioeconomic status or economics. 100%, 100%. Do you mind talking a little bit about your, your research focus, um, things that, that interest you? Sure. Um, uh, I went to school for landscape architecture at Michigan. Uh, that's the design and planning and stewardship of outdoor spaces. So for people who don't know, what landscape architects do, if you take everything but the building doesn't mean we do it, but that's what we're trained to think about and deal with. And so there's an ecological side, there's a human side, there's, there's lots of components to it. Uh, and when I was at Michigan, uh, uh, landscape architecture was on one floor in the building, environmental justice is on another floor. Now, never talked, right? Never interacted. But again, because of my lived experience and I sought it out, so every uh, elective, every opportunity I had to take seminar or, or, or a lecture class from one of the environmental justice scholars, I would do it, which leads to why I ended up doing what I was doing. I found that I really enjoyed engaging communities and helping them uh, with tools to make decisions about the environment that as we're trained as designers, we're trained to think as experts, right? So we gather all this information, but we individually, we like a superhero kind of comes in, draws the beautiful picture, and voila, go and build it, and it'll be great. But we, I learned uh, that that has done a lot of damage in the past, and particularly to our communities. 
So uh, there was a counter movement uh, in the mid 20th century of advocacy planning and community design where designers said, well, communities were prepared with the right tools and provided the right settings that they were fully capable of making their own decisions and understanding the impacts of those decisions. And so it's a movement that was called democratic design. And that's where I spend a lot of my time. So there's an ecological side to it in terms of using our tools to identify uh, patterns of uh, correlations that have produced sort of uh, injustice in the environment and, and kind of strategically looking at those areas to see if there were solution strategies, uh, developing partnerships with communities and organizations to uh, bubble up groups of people that would like to sort of engage in a process of, of transformation, uh, providing those tools so that people can make those decisions, capturing those decisions, translating them into tools that can affect real change. So, so that's where my research kind of lies, which means that I have to deal with some history, I have to deal with uh, some analysis and environment analysis, I have to deal with some politics, and of course, I have to deal with uh, tools for engaging people. Thank you so much. Thank you. Today's guest was Professor Kofi Boone, a fellow of the American Society of Landscape Architects, who is the Joseph D. Moore Distinguished Professor of Landscape Architecture and Environmental Planning at North Carolina State University. The Wading Deep podcast comes to you from a place we affectionately call the Bros, St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube, The Bros NC on Twitter, and The Bros 1868 on Instagram. I am your host, the Reverend Jamond Taylor. Gods are going to trouble the water of environmental racism, resurrecting a river of life clear as crystal. Shalom. Salam. Peace.